series, so we're in the second week. Last week we went over the entire Old Testament. I'm looking here in this version of the Bible. That's about that much. If you're listening at home, get your Old Testament out so you know what I'm looking at. It's about that much of the Bible. Um, so that's a lot of stuff I understand. This week, uh, a little bit less. I have the Apocrypha in here, so I have to skip ahead. <clears throat> that's that middle section that I talked about. Read Bill and the Dragon and Judith. Good books. Not particularly important to our daily life, though. And this is the New Testament. right? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, Da Vinci Code? Dan Brown's novel, anybody read it? Um, I read Angels and Demons uh, before Da Vinci Code come on. I love books like that. Uh, Angels and Demons, Da Vinci Code, I forget what the, the symbol, the sigil, something like that's the, the third one in that series. Great, uh, great books, interesting books, uh, good movies. Tom Hanks was in the movie version. Uh, suggest I have a beautiful copy of it uh, if you want to borrow it. I also, we, I think we have the movies. I encourage you to go see them. But uh, when, when the Da Vinci Code came out in the book, and then of course when the movie came out, uh, it brought up a lot of conspiracy theories, all right? Because that's really what it is. Now, the Da Vinci Code is, is fiction. It's a, it's a novel, as many novels are, uh, and it's pretend. It's not based on anything real, but it is based on some things that do exist. And there are some ideas in the Da Vinci Code that, you know, people thought, oh, you know, this is this secret conspiracy that, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married, that they had kids, you know, and these, the Catholic Church was hiding all of this. Uh, and one of those things was the Catholic Church was hiding secret gospels. Secret gospels that none of us had ever read. Well, I own all of the secret gospels, so, uh, and you can Google them, right? I mean, again, it's really not a secret. The Gospel of Thomas is in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, you can go, you can Google Gospel of Thomas. You can read the entire thing. We really, the, even the Roman Catholic Church, as many mistakes as it's made, especially during the Middle Ages, it really hasn't kept things secret. You know, there's a reason the Gospel of Thomas is not in the New Testament. There's a reason the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Barnabas, there's a reason some letters didn't make it. Uh, and, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Really, the New Testament is not that mysterious. The Old Testament is a lot more mysterious than the New Testament because the Old Testament is talking about a historical period of 1,500 years or more and probably written over hundreds and hundreds of years. The New Testament's talking about, a, at most, a historical period of 100 years, really focused on 30 or 40 of those years, and written around that same length of time, about 100 years, maybe written actually over the course of about 40 years. So we have a lot more information about it. It's not secret. And understanding how it came together, understanding what it is, what each of the different sections are, actually helps us as Christians know why this book is so important. Uh, so it's not a secret. It's not a conspiracy. I wish you know, it would be more exciting if it was, maybe a little bit. Uh, but we're not going on a treasure hunt today, and we're not going to find any mystical secrets, sorry. Uh, but we will talk a little bit about this book called the New Testament. <clears throat> there are 27 books in the New Testament. As I just showed you, the New Testament is considerably shorter than the Old Testament. The Old Testament in your standard Bible without an Apocrypha, a Protestant Bible with no Apocrypha, the Old Testament is about three quarters of the Bible. The New Testament is one quarter. So we're talking about a much shorter in terms of reading it. 
There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There is a book called The Acts of the Apostles, and that is the history of the early church, especially considering or especially surrounding the persons of Peter and the person of Paul. Not, not Mary in that group. That would come later. Then, that was a joke. Peter, Paul, and Mary? Okay. Yeah. No? That much, much later in the canon. <laughs> then the majority of the New Testament are letters from the apostles, including the Apostle Paul. Letters from the apostles to the early church. They are actual letters. Letters, just like letters. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then finally, we have the revelation of John. And this is a prophet-like book. Very similar to the prophets in the Old Testament. But it's a warning to local churches that they need to turn back towards God and continue to do the ministry of Jesus Christ. So that's the four kind of parts. Very similar to the four parts of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we have the story, we have the law, then we have uh, the history, then we have the letters, we have poems, writings, we call that, and then there's prophecy. So very similar if you look at the structures or the sections of the Old Testament, sections in the New Testament, very similar. Now the timeline, the story timeline, <clears throat> Jesus is born around 4 B.C. Don't know exactly when Jesus was born. The best guess is around 4 B.C. Wasn't he born around zero? <sighs> That would have made sense, wouldn't it? Uh, well, we think he was actually born a little bit before with, with our current uh, understanding of time and history. So around 4 B.C. to 0 if you want to be around 0. He was crucified, therefore, around 29 A.D. or 33 A.D. if you think he was born around 0. Paul, the Apostle Paul, converted to Christianity around 33 A.D. And between 44 A.D. and 48 A.D., he made his first missionary journey to Asia Minor where he started planting churches. So that's kind of the timeline of the events. Okay, not, not the books, but the events in the New Testament. Now let's talk about the writing when it was written down. The Gospels are not considered the oldest texts. This is important. They are first in the Bible in the New Testament. They come first because they're the story of Jesus, but they are not the eldest texts. The oldest texts are the letters written by Paul considered uh, to be dated from about 50 to 65 A.D. The Gospel of Mark was written around 65 to 70 A.D. Gospel of Matthew and Luke around 70 to 80. And the Gospel of John around 80 to 90. The Revelation of John written between 95 and 100. And the rest of the letters kind of span that timeline. So the majority of the Bible, the New Testament Bible, was written between 50 and 100 A.D. So written between 50 years and a 50-year process. So that's why we really know a lot about what's going on in the New Testament because it's 50 years that everything happened uh, and everything was written down. So we have a really good understanding. Now I want to talk about how it's, therefore, how it became what we have as the New Testament because this is where the conspiracy theories come in and that's why we're talking about it. So what your friends say, oh, you know, that gospel, that secret gospel that you don't want me to read. No, you can go read it. Um, there's a reason it's not in there. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I want you to know how it came about. Now, it's really easy to track the history of the New Testament because it took place in such a short period of time. Now, those first few years, Jesus died around 29 A.D., 
The gospel wasn't written until around 65, the gospel of Mark as we have it. Why was there no written accounts of Jesus' life? Because the apostles were still alive. Those men and women that followed Jesus Christ, the 12 disciples, 11 of them, but then we replaced one, right? So the 12 disciples, they were the apostles. They carried on the tradition of Jesus. And you didn't need to have anything written down because if you wanted to ask, oh, what did Jesus say about this? You would go to, you know, name one, James, and say, you know, James, what did Jesus say about this? And he says, well, I remember when Jesus was talking one time over dinner and he said this, right? So you didn't have to. You had that first person account. Those disciples started being killed. All of them except one, John, they were killed. They were executed in pretty horrible graphic ways that I could go into great detail about uh, because I I always think that's kind of neat. But it was pretty horrible the ways they were killed. Um, and, And so people said, well, maybe we should write some of this stuff down. You know? And so they started writing some of this stuff down. So that's in the first century during that time Saul who is a Jewish lawyer a Pharisee he wants to destroy the church he has a conversion experience around 33 AD and he becomes Paul and he starts writing letters to these churches that he plants and so he has written letters before gospels are even written although people are starting to write stuff down Paul is writing letters to his churches that he's planted saying by the way, I know I planted this church and it's been a while. I heard you guys are doing some bad things. Don't stop doing it. And that's kind of what all of the letters are. Uh, and so Paul starts writing letters. And, you know, the letter to the book of, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit in, in detail, the, the letter to the Galatians. Galatia was a, a period, like an entire region, right? Kind of like a country. And so it wasn't just one church, it was several churches. So, you know, he would send it to this church and then they would send it around and everybody would read it and people said, hey, maybe we should start keeping this. <clears throat> now, as the first century ended, we have written account of church leaders like Clement and other people in, in the uh, first century quoting Paul's letters. They're actually quoting Paul's letters. So we know that Paul's letters were being circulated by the end of the first century. In the early 2nd century, we find the uh, uh, Didioc, I don't remember how to pronounce that, Didioc, which is a record of the practices of the early church. And they actually, in the Didioc, they actually quote Matthew. So this is in the very first part of the 2nd century, uh, 110 or something like that, right? So they actually start quoting Matthew. And we see... Justin Martyr, speaking of all four of the Gospels in the century, we see by the end of the second century that all of the books of the New Testament are in one way or another around. That people are reading them. People think they are important. People think that they are vital. And in terms of other books, there's a few other books like the Didioc, First Clement, the Letter of Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas, which all of those you can read. And those were thought to also be important. And so these things were circulated. We have written documentation that these books and letters were circulated. They were read by the early church and people thought these were the things that were important. Now we go into the 3rd and 4th century and names like Tertullian, Clement of Alexander, Origen, they dominate the the, the basic discussion of Scripture in that century. And by the end of the third and fourth century, we actually have a list 
of books that are considered authoritative scripture and are considered important to the life of the church. In the 4th century, we have Athanasius first lists the 27 books that we have and then <clears throat> talks about other books like the Didiac and the Shepherd of Hermas. But then in, in 397, the Council of Carthage, so 397, a few hundred years after Jesus died, the Council of Carthage created a canon. And that was the 27 books that we currently have in the New Testament. They said these books... These books are the books that are important. These letters are the letters that are important. These writings are the letters or are the writings that are most important. They are most authoritative. And this is the criteria. I, I want to tell, so why did they choose these books over those books, everything else? These are the criteria. And when we talk about canon, we have to talk about criteria. So again, it's not secret. We, all of this stuff is documented. We have, you could just read libraries of letters written back and forth between these people talking about these things. Extensive notes on all of the councils. You know, the Council of Ephesus, the Nicene Council, uh, the Council of Carthage, several councils of Carthage. Basically, all church meetings. You know, we have annual conference. Well, they had those back then in the early church. People from all over the known world would come around and they'd have big meetings. And every time somebody started this thing and said, well, you know, I don't think Jesus was really God, they said, oh, wait a minute, we have to have a big meeting and we have to talk about that for a while. And every time that happened, they had these big meetings and started to understand this is what we believe. So why did they choose these books? There's actually these criteria. And I just want to quickly go so you understand why these books were chosen and other books weren't chosen. The first is usefulness. The book or the writing had to be considered useful to the life of the congregation. So if Paul wrote a letter to Joe and it was very specific and you know nobody else got anything out of it, they said, well, that letter's not so important. But this letter, wow, this letter to the church in Rome, everybody's going to get something out of that. That is really important. Is it useful? The second is consistency. Did this gospel story kind of consistently match up with all the other gospel stories? Did it match up with the teachings that Paul talks about or Peter talks about? Does it consistently uh, kind of intertwine with the rest of Scripture? That's why the Gospel of Thomas did not make it in. Because it is certainly not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Go read it. Seriously, go read it. You can Google it. I may have a couple copies of it laying around somewhere, but... Uh, it is crazy pants. I mean, it's just full on, <clears throat> just full on crazy stuff. No, in, completely inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. And so they said, and it was also written a little bit later, uh, later than John, so in the second century. And they said, no, this is written by somebody who obviously wasn't in the rest of the vein of our tradition. The third is association. The book had to be considered connected to that first generation of Christians to the disciples, to the early apostles. It had to be associated with them. If it wasn't associated with them, like the Gospel of Thomas, it, it became second source material. And they wanted those first source, that primary source, to be the Scriptures that we consider. So, you know, were these people, Paul, for example, were they associated with the early church? You know, was this letter written by Peter? Was it written by James? Was, you know, this Gospel written by someone who actually was around, who actually knew Jesus? who actually knew one of the disciples. The third is acceptance. They were accepted as important before the canon was even established. I told you that the, these, there were letters of Paul in the first century, by the end of the first century, that were considered important. 
that by the second century, all of the books of the New Testament were considered important. That people were reading them. They were passing them around. They were, these Gospels were circulating. They said, yeah, these are important. They were accepted as Scripture before the canon was finalized. And finally, there's a fifth criteria, and that's inspiration. And that's the feeling that, yes, these books were truly inspired by God. Even if it was a letter, it was truly inspired by God that these are really holy words. These are important words. These definitely came from a, a person who had God in them, that the Spirit was working in them. So that's just a little bit about the construction um, of the canon of the New Testament as we had it. I think it's important, maybe it's boring to you, I think it's important that you at least know every few years that that's how it came to be, okay? Uh, because it comes up and people try to debate this and that and the other thing, um, but it's not a secret. All right, it, it wasn't a big conspiracy theory. We know pretty much exactly how it came to be, all of the different stuff that happened. You can read extensive history. If you love history, there's hundreds of books, uh, hundreds of collections of letters and everything else that goes and talks about all of that stuff. Uh, and I'm happy to share that if that's something you're interested in. The majority of the New Testament, now switching subjects here a little bit, the majority of the New Testament is letters. We call them epistles because... Letters is uh, too easy of a word to say, I guess. Um, but they're letters, okay? They were letters. They were written by one person or, or by told to somebody to, and then written down, and they were sent. Just I mean, We don't have letters. I guess we do, but most of us don't send them anymore. Um, but you could write, if you remember writing letters to people. <clears throat> Think back, those of you, if you're some of our younger folks, um, I don't even know how to you know, relate it. So think about a text message, but it would be really long and it would take like a day and a half to write. Then you'd have to bring it to the post. It was awful. Um, so, um, so that happened years ago, of course. And, and so we have to think about the fact that these were letters. And these were not stock letters. Have you ever gotten a stock letter like from a fundraising company or from, you know, you know I get them from my uh, car dealer all the time, you know, thanking me for business. You know, stock letters, you know, they, we get those all the time. These are not stock letters, okay? These were written by a specific person to a specific audience. In some cases, two specific people. Timothy, First and Second Timothy, uh, written by Paul or, you know, a disciple of Paul. Um, to who? Tim, right, yeah, Tim. Uh, he was, you know, he's, he got the letter. That was, that was a letter addressed to Tim. Uh, the Galatians, for example, that was written to all of the churches in Galatia. So all those little upstart churches that were popping up, this, Paul was writing a letter to that entire area. And he said, you know, take this letter and then you know, make a copy of it and then send it off to you know, Sherland and then you know, send it off down to you know, Poplar Grove. And, you know, I mean, that's basically what we're talking about. And those were letters written from someone specific to someone else. Okay, so, so why am I making a big deal about that? Think about it for a second. Think about a letter that you write to someone who you know. Someone who you have a relationship with. Okay? And then think about somebody else reading that letter. Are they going to pick up on all those nuances? On all those inside jokes even, right? Think about trying to read your kids, your grandkids' text messages. Right? <laughs> right? Are you going to pick up on all the, you know, the cultural shift that's taken place? Well, there's been some cultural shifts in the last 2,000 years. Go figure, huh? So when we are reading the letters, we have to be mindful that these were letters. 
They were written by a person. They were written to a specific community. Does that mean they're not important to us? No, they're exceptionally important. Vitally important. But we have to be mindful of that. So I want to look at the eldest letter, the eldest book in the, newest, in the New Testament. So the oldest book in the New Testament, right? And that is arguably Galatians. Galatians was arguably Paul's first letter. It was not more than 20 years after Pentecost this letter was written. Pentecost happens around 30 A.D. This letter was probably written around 50 A.D. And Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, this big area north of Judea, which would be modern-day Turkey, if any of you are familiar with the Middle East. So modern-day Turkey, that's where Galatia would have been. If not, go home and look on a map or something. Um, Paul himself Jewish, right? He was a Jewish scholar, a Jewish Pharisee, a lawyer. Very, very well-versed in Judaism. And he would go to churches, synagogues, Jewish synagogues, churches, Jewish churches, and he would preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And he would get kicked out of the synagogues. And so then he would go preach to you know, the Gentiles, everybody who wasn't Jewish. And then they would be like, wow, that's really cool. And then he would start a church. And so Paul became a missionary to the Gentiles. And he believed that Jesus fulfilled the law, that Jesus made it complete. And so you no longer were bound by the law. You didn't have to live those 613 commandments that we talked about last week in the Old Testament. You didn't have to live by them verbatim because Jesus completed them. In the person of Jesus Christ, we had a new covenant and a new relationship. So he didn't require new Christians to live by all of them. They were certainly good to live by. For example, Paul did not require new Christians to be circumcised. And if you understand... The Old Testament, to become a Jew, you had to get circumcised. That was the sign that you were part of the tribe. Okay? That's a big deal. We don't talk about it anymore, but it was a big deal. We're going to get back to that in just a little bit. That was a big deal. And so Paul is going to these churches and saying, no, you are alive in Jesus Christ. You are new in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to eat kosher. You don't have to wear the tassels. You are fine. You need to live like Christ. And then some other Christians who were Jewish, um, you know, they would wait till Paul left town and then they would kind of go up and they would say, okay, by the way, guys, I know Paul just came and told you about Jesus Christ and it was great, but you do have to get circumcised and you do have to eat kosher and you have to wear the tassels and all of that stuff. And so when Paul find, found out about this, <clears throat> you can imagine, he was not particularly happy. And so read Galatians this week. Paul is really angry in Galatians. Like, really, really angry. He is frustrated, and that is why he is frustrated. We hear it right here in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 6 through 9. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ to follow another gospel. Now, it's not really another gospel, but certainly people are confusing you, and they want you to change the gospel of Christ. However, even if we ourselves or a heavenly angel should ever preach anything different from what we are preached to you, they should be under a curse. I'm repeating what I have said before. If anyone preaches something different from what you have received, they should be under a curse. Excel angry, exclamation point. I should have said it more angrily. So Paul is writing this letter because these people are confused. Paul came and said, this is Jesus Christ. This is how you should live. And then another group of Christians, this never happens, right? Another group of Christians came and said, no, this is how you should live. And Paul said, ah, 
Just to be clear, I'm going to write it down so you are understanding what I said. Here's a letter, exactly what I told you. Remember it. It's important. Don't listen to these other people. Paul clarifies in chapter 2, we are born Jews, we're not Gentile sinners. However, we know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law, probably things now you're familiar with, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. Sound familiar? You are not saved by good work. You are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's going to come up a lot in Paul's letters. You might understand a little bit more about why Paul is doing that. So Paul says you are saved because of your faith in Jesus Christ. The people disagreed with that. Some people, some Christians, thinking that you were still had to be saved through the good things that you did. Now Paul understood that there was these kind of multiple theologies to extremes, okay? He understood that there was this group, kind of we call it legalism, they said you had to live out the entire law, the letter of the law. If you wanted to be saved, if you want to be good, you had to live the law, legalism. You have to do this, that, and the other thing. But then he also knew, well, if I'm telling you you don't have to live by the law, you are saved by faith, I have to be careful about this other thing, libertinism, libertinism, liberty, Inism, right? Is that how you say it? <laughs> I'd have to think about that a second. Basically doing anything you want. The school of libertinism basically going to the opposite extreme. So he knew that I have to tell people that you don't necessarily have to live by the letter of the law, but there's still some you know, rules. You can't just do anything you want. So he already understood that in 50 AD. He already understood that a few years after his First churches have been started. And so what's he doing in the, the letter to the Galatians? The first four chapters, he addresses this e issue of legalism. The second two chapters, chapter 5 and 6, he deals with this issue of overabundance of liberty. Right? That's what he spends his book on. Now, if you have no idea who Paul was, what Paul is doing, what Paul is facing when he's writing to the Galatians, you are missing some of the powerful nature and probably not understanding why he's so angry the entire time, right? Because it's an angry letter. You're missing so much of that because this is a letter written by someone to someone else. And when you understand that there's this battle going on between this sect of Christianity and Paul's kind of understanding of Christianity, and then he wants to make sure that we don't start another kind of do-whatever-we-want cult of Christianity. And so he's trying to challenge these two ways. Now think about United, the United States in 1950. All right? Soviet war was, or the Soviet Union was our main enemy, right? 1950. The birth control pill, not yet available. Interesting. Three quarters of college graduates were men. Separate but equal was the reality of our land. For public schools, rail cars, drinking fountains, pools, parks. Separate, right? But equal. And this was a nation where 90% of Congress 
considered themselves to be Christians. Fast forward 65 years. Think how much has changed in the last 50 or 65 years. Laws of equality, how and what our enemies have transferred, transformed into. We're fighting enemies in, in, in terrorism. We've just created this kind of broad understanding of terrorism and our enemies are so hard to understand. And now we have domestic active shooter incidences every month. We're fighting ourselves. Think about all the advances in the last 65 years in technology. Think of how, how just our phones have advanced. Think about how computers have advanced in the last 65 years. We had computers in 1950. They took up entire buildings and they could solve basic math problems, right? Now we have computers the size of our hand and they can do everything. 65 years, a lot can happen. And the issues we face today weren't even thought of 65 years ago. The point is the epistles of the New Testament are amazingly, amazingly timeless. So timeless that we can read them and say, wow, that is happening today. But we also need to consider how to apply teaching to our lives based on mail received by someone 2,000 years ago. We really do. We have to be very careful about how we live out <laughs> reading someone else's mail <laughs> that's 2,000 years old and how much has changed in the world since then. Now, the process of understanding the historical and cultural context of the world of Paul and the early church, understanding how they were written and then understanding how they apply it to us, that's called interpretation. It's called hermeneutics. That's the fancy word. Hermeneutics. And that is something we have to learn how to do even as casual Bible scholars, not that you should ever be that. We should all be committed to this book. And so if we don't understand that, if we don't take time, if we don't have a Bible that has a little preface every letter and say, this is what was going on with that church. This is what was going on in this time. Or when we meet together and say, this is what I think it says. If we don't understand the world was so radically different, we might get confused like those Galatians. You might get thrown off course by somebody else's teaching. Let's take an example, just a, an example right here, back in Galatians. Paul speaks adamantly against circumcision. Adamantly against circumcision in the book of Galatians. Read it sometime. Adamantly against circumcision. Yet 50% of male babies born in the United States today are circumcised. How many... I won't ask for hands. How many of you considered the teachings of the Apostle Paul before making that decision for your child? I'm not asking for hands, but I'm asking you to think about it. How many of you think that is why someone chooses not to circumcise their child or to circumcise their child for religious reasons? Well, if you're an Orthodox Jew, yes. <laughs> then yes. How many Christians? I'm guessing very few. Maybe zero. And we don't even think about it, do we? We completely ignore Paul's adamant frustration that people were getting circumcised. Adamant frustration. Because the world has changed, and that's no longer why we get circumcised. It's no longer why we circumcise little babies, and we have arguments about that to this day. And there are arguments medically, right? 
So we don't think about that. But yet we take other things in the New Testament out of letters and we apply them as if they are that important. So we need to be consistent (laughs) in our understanding. If you didn't take into account Paul's letter to the Galatians when you got your child circumcised, maybe you should be a little bit more careful about other things that you believe Paul said about the treatment of women or the importance of women in church or what we do with our gay and lesbian friends, how we treat them. Things have changed in 2,000 years. And these were written to people, specific people. So we need to understand that. So let's move to the Gospels. We talked about letters. And so, so the majority of the New Testament is letters, but then we have these wonderful things called the Gospels. And I'm going to end just today talking a little bit about the Gospels because the Gospels can be confusing. And this is why I, I, we need to talk about the Gospels for a little bit because there are four different Gospels and guess what? Different things happen in each Gospel. Okay, have, have, has anybody ever seen a, a movie about Jesus? <clears throat> the greatest story ever told, one of the first movies, one of the first films. Have you ever seen that one? Black and white, silent film, greatest story ever told. Great, silent film, very short. One of the first things filmed uh, with modern film technology was the story of Jesus. So believe me, there have been many, many stories of Jesus. I love some of the movies. We have so many. I mean, of course, the Bible and Son of God, that's some of the newer ones. The Gospel of John, I think, is a great movie. came out in the 2000s. Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's, uh, you know, very intense version. But even Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell. Last Temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese's film. They're all very different, aren't they? Have you ever seen a lot of those or maybe one or two of those? Very different. They're telling different stories. They're uh, living up different things. You know, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, it's really focused on um, the way of the cross, the stations of the cross. Uh, if you didn't know that, that's what it's based on. It's based on the stations of the cross. It's really powerful if you view it as kind of this meditative experience like the stations of the cross. I really appreciate that. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is really talking about the humanity of Christ and really struggling with the humanity of Christ. And that's really important to understand that. God was, Jesus Christ was all God, all human. Uh, Last Temptation of Christ, that's a little bit more of a racy one. It's really talking about, if you get into it, what Christ went through on the cross. And I think it's, it's a really important question that Martin Scorsese brings to us. The Gospel of John is just a literal version of the Gospel of John, verse by verse. Wonderful. The Gospels are the same. They tell different stories. And we need to say this because we have people who are kind of proponents of, uh, or or kind of opponents of Christianity and saying, well, you have four different stories of Jesus and they conflict. They do. There's actually conflicting data in these four stories, especially the Gospel of John. We'll talk about that. But we need to understand why. Why are there four different stories? Why does Jesus say this in Mark and this in Matthew? What? Why is Jesus completely different in the Gospel of John? Why, why are the timetables changed? You know, Jesus throws over, you know, Jesus throws over the tables in the temple. We've talked about that. We've preached whole sermons on that. Well, he does that early on in the Gospel of John. He does that late in the other Gospels. Why does he do that? Those are important things to understand why that all came to be. I want to start with Luke, Luke chapter 1. I think this is important to read. Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially. Actually, actually, you could read the first four chapters of each of the Gospels this week. That would be a good exercise. Luke says, Many people have already applied themselves to the task of compiling an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. 
They used what the original eyewitnesses and services of the word handed down to us. Now, after having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. I want to have your confidence in the soundness of the instructions that you have received. Now, we could spend a whole day talking about Theophilus. Uh, We won't. But, you know, last week we talked about, you know, some people believe that the Gospels or the Scripture just kind of fell from heaven uh, or, or even maybe God dictated it to a human. But here we have Luke very plainly telling that you know some other people have been writing down the Gospels, right? People have been writing down stories of Jesus and I have spent time, that's what he says, I have been investigating, that's the language he uses, I've gone from person to person, from town to town, and I've tried to develop an orderly account of what really happened, of what really went on. Now, does that sound like Luke is saying, God dictated these words to me, or you know, a magic golden tablet fell from the sky and I'm just copying it down to you, Theophilus? No, well, that's a different religion. I won't get into that. Um, who's who, that, that different religion? Um, which I respect, and you know, so there I won't, won't go into it. <clears throat> no, it, it, it was a painstaking process. Luke took his time. He wrote it down. He talked to people. He wanted to try to figure out. And Luke was probably around in the story too. So we generally believe the Gospels were written between 70 and 90 AD, uh, maybe 65 AD for Mark, maybe up to 100 AD for John. Um, They were written, we've already said, because the apostles started to die. So we needed to have that account. They were records of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they begin with this story, the good news. The gospel, gospel means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus came, right, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, God is here. Emmanuel, Christ, God with us. Christ with us. We see this in the first chapter of the gospel. Look, other people had obviously written some stuff. Maybe they'd just taken notes. Oh, you know, Jesus said this, this, this. You know, maybe somebody just sat down. You know, I'm going to write all these parables, Jesus said. Or, you know, somebody wrote down like a timeline. Well, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But Luke took it upon himself to start getting those eyewitness reports, to start looking at the data, and a pilot in an orderly account. John Mark who traveled with Paul. John Mark, who was Peter's interpreter. This is interesting, right? John Mark was Peter's interpreter. Peter spoke Aramaic. And so when he was in trial in Rome, the Romans didn't speak Aramaic, so he needed an interpreter. And so John Mark came and and was his interpreter. So here's John Mark spending all this time with Paul and then spending all this time with Peter, the, the disciple Peter, the rock, Rocky, right? Right? Yeah, well, that's what Kaipa, Rocky, that's... It's his name. It's what the name Jesus gave him, at least. And here, Mark writes down what he thinks are the important parts. Then we have Matthew, who, who was a disciple, right? And John, who may have been one of the disciples, writing down their accounts, their eyewitness report. Interesting. So that's how they came to be. There's something else we have to talk about, and it's It's troubling. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read them back to back, they seem very similar. 
And then you get to John, and it's off here somewhere. Completely different. Completely different timetable. Completely different focus. Almost a different Jesus in a sense. And so why is that? Well, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic comes from words that mean look like each other, okay? Because they look like each other. Now, you can do entire studies. You can look this up online. Uh, Making Sense of the Bible has some nice things in it if you want to look at this. We see and we believe that Mark was the very first book. But then we see Matthew and Luke take a lot from Mark. In in fact, about 85% of Mark is in Matthew and Luke. And both Matthew and Luke have about 40 to 50% of Mark in them. But then there are some other things. And so there was a theory that came up about 150 years ago called two-source theory that Matthew and Luke had with them Mark. They had a copy of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, in their hands, or at least accessible to them. And then they had another copy, another, uh, another document that was just sayings of Jesus, just things Jesus said. And we call that Q, the Q source, the Q document. Now, in, in recent years, there's been another theory, a uh, four-source theory, basically the same thing, um, that then Matthew had a unique kind of eyewitness report or unique document to him, and then Luke had a unique document to him or unique perspective, because there are things that are unique to Luke uh, and things that are unique to Matthew. But there's a lot of similarities, and it's fun to see. You can get a gospel parallel. That's really fun. Um, and I have all kinds of those. Those are good to have. Uh, and it tells you the similarities and the differences and everything else. And that, that's good to know where things are different, where things are the same, and to see what Jesus said in some different ways. This means that there were other written materials before Jesus, before the gospel, or before the gospels were written, um, but they weren't really complete. And so that's why the gospels came to be in this narrative form that we could read, that we could understand. And the synoptic Gospels really do tell us the, narrate, the narrative form of Jesus' life. They tell us the events. Uh, and they give us a lot of teaching. They tell us what happened, why it happened. Uh, e- each kind of has its own little thing, and we could spend a lot of time talking about Matthew really writing to a Jewish community, uh, Luke really focusing on healing, Mark being very, you know, this happened, this happened. I like Mark a lot. Um, I don't know if you've read my book, that's how I write. So I, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not a lot of times looking at the trees here. Let's get it, let's get it done. Uh, let's get to the action. That's kind of how Mark writes. And then we have the Gospel of John. And it seems radically different. If you read the first chapter of all Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, Luke telling about how he's doing this, uh, you know, uh, account, you know, he's writing to Theophilus. Theophilus may have been us. You know, it's hard to understand who Theophilus was. We don't really know. Um, It just may have been a word to talk to other Christians. Matthew kind of starting with this genealogy, you know, of Jesus and making sure that we all know that, you know, Jesus was, you know, part of the Jewish tradition. And Mark saying like, yeah, let's go, let's do this you know, Jesus thing. You know, I'm going to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. And then, then we have John. In the beginning was the Word. Right? It's totally different. It's totally out in left field. The synoptic Gospels give us the lifetimes and narrative of Jesus. God, or John gives us this spiritual view. Gives us this Jesus who's human but supernatural. This, this Jesus who is, is God. This Jesus who's performing miracles, and all there's miracles in all the, the Gospels, but John really focuses on, and we've done a whole sermon series on those, on those miracles last year. John really focuses on those and lifts them up, and each one of those miracles really illustrate the supernatural, divine person of Jesus Christ. And then all of them, of course, focus on the passion 
Jesus' last days on earth. The Synoptic Gospels call for us to follow Jesus to bring about the kingdom of heaven, right? To make the kingdom here. What's the Gospel of John call us to do? To be born again. To abide in Christ. To be transformed personally. So now are you seeing some things? The, the Synoptic Gospels tell us to live a certain way. To live like Jesus. To make His kingdom. To transform our world. The Gospel of John tells us to transform our hearts. Transform our person. Are you seeing some maybe things that are still alive in the church today? This is why it's important. This is why we have four Gospels. Because in the church today... We have two Jesuses. We have churches and, and generally the mainline denominations who are really about the kingdom of heaven. We want the kingdom of heaven here so our world is better. We want the kingdom of heaven here so what happened at another community college this week doesn't happen again. You know, we can talk about gun control and mental health all until we're blue in the face. The only thing that's going to stop it is the kingdom of heaven. I believe that radically, and I'll post it on Facebook so people can yell at me. Okay? But that's true, and I, it's hard to even argue with my friends who are agnostic or atheist or Republican or Democrat or, or anything, because that's really the truth. The only way people are going to stop being evil is if they have Jesus Christ in their life, is if they are transformed. And the only way they're going to be doing that is if the church is being the church. And unfortunately, we have some churches that are really synoptic, that they're just doing. You know, uh, the Pope came. Uh, you know, and, and I love the Pope. Uh, the Pope came and, you know, talked about, you know, we got to be better about serving the poor. We got to be better about education. We got to be better about science. This is things the church has done for hundreds and thousands of years. The church started school. The church started science. The church started art and music. These things were supported by the church, lifted up by the church. We wouldn't have half of the stuff that we have today if it wasn't because of the church. And so that's not new news. But it is new news because so much of non-denominational Christianity is all about Jesus as my friend, right? And it's all about me and Jesus and, you know, yay, right? But that's the Gospel of John. That's good. We have to be transformed from the inside out. But it also we have to have the kingdom of heaven. So there are four Gospels, not three, not one. And sometimes we struggle because we would really, really, really like the born again, just Jesus, just that Jesus, just Gospel of John Jesus. Sometimes I would like just Gospel of John Jesus because yeah, because I'm, I'm abiding because I read my Bible every day and I'm pretty good and I've devoted my life to Christ and I've given so much and I've offered so much and I'm, you know, I'm born again, I'm, you know, I've been made new. And so I, I got everything I, I need, Right? But then we got, you know, we got that other Jesus who's saying, you know, if you if you have two shirts, you should give one to somebody else. You know, and if you have, you know, some extra stuff, maybe you should give that to the poor. And you know, we have that other Jesus that says maybe you shouldn't, you know, be so judgmental. But there aren't two Jesuses. <laughs> That's the problem. We've created that dichotomy because we like to take one gospel or another gospel or one Jesus or another Jesus. But we have four gospels for a reason because that's a complete picture. It's a Jesus who is calling us to personal life change so that we can help world change happen. Starts in us, yes, but then it has to go outside of us. 
And that's what we struggle with. We struggle with. Sometimes our mainline denominations struggle with the heart stuff. Sometimes our non-denominational churches struggle with actually, you know, helping people. Right? We're good. Methodists are doing all kinds of things across the world, but you talk about the Holy Spirit. Hell, you know, watch out. I don't want that Holy Spirit messing with me. Let's not raise our hands. No, not this church, but you know, right? Let's not raise our hands. That's a little creepy, right? So we struggle. We have this dichotomy. And thank God, you know, it's okay to have a dichotomy, but Jesus isn't one or the other. We are children of God. We live in the kingdom of heaven. Both are important. So the New Testament is not just a record of Jesus' life and the life of our early church. It is the story of salvation, right? And it's the stories of the early followers of Jesus living into that salvation, making that salvation accessible to other people, Christ's body, the church, as it struggled, as it grew, and now as we try to live that same way. So the New Testament story, just like the Old Testament story, is our story. And that's why it's important to understand how complicated it is. And that's why it's, under, it's hard, important to understand that you know, sometimes these letters were written in specific situations or that there's more than one gospel. Because this is our story and our stories are challenging. And our stories aren't over. And our stories need to continue if we are to make the kingdom come and if we are to be children of God. Amen. It's a lot of stuff, I understand. Next week we'll talk about a little less stuff, I promise. Uh, we'll talk about um, the nature of Scripture, the, the Word of God, all, what all that stuff means, and try to understand maybe some, some in-between views of things. You know, We don't need to have all the answers, uh, but we do need to be able to understand kind of all the sides of the situation. So let's respond to this, and we uh, started this last week. Responding to um, our, our word, our t- teaching time, with the social creed. And again, we do a lot of personal, I do a lot of personal stuff. I'm pretty much Pentecostal myself, even though I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I'm a Holy Spirit person. Uh, so I'm all about life change. I'm all about, I mean, the church is called New Life, for goodness sake, right? <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm not trying to hide that. Uh, but we need to remember that, yeah, okay. We need to do some other stuff too. And we need to devote ourselves to world change, not just person change. Uh, so the social creed is something that reminds us to do that, to challenge ourselves, to, to move outside of ourselves. Um, so I'll, I'll say one slide, you say another slide, and we'll kind of go back and forth reading this together. So I'll start and then you can read the next slide. And then I'll take it back and we'll just go back and forth. We believe in God, creator of the world, and in Jesus Christ, the redeemer of creation. We believe in the Holy Spirit through whom we acknowledge God's gifts and we repent of our sin in misusing these gifts to idolatrous ends. You read. We joyfully receive ourselves and others the blessings of community, sexuality, marriage, and the family. Now you read.
We believe in the right and duty of all persons to work for the glory of God and the good of themselves and of others, and in the protection of their welfare in so doing, in the rights to property as a trust from God, collective bargaining, responsible consumption, and in the elimination of economic and social distress. You read. We believe in the present and final triumph of God's Word in human affairs and gladly accept our commission to manifest the life of the Gospel in the world. And the people said, Amen. United Methodists, or Methodists, Methodists before United Methodists, uh, have been saying that since 1908. So since the last time the Cubs won the World Series. Well, hopefully, I, I won't be able to say that next month <clears throat> or, you know, next week. <laughs> well, yeah, I might, I might be sad next Wednesday. Pray fervently next Wednesday. But uh, we, we do that because it is, you know, Methodists have been saying that creed and, and praying that creed and, and trying to live that creed out for over 100 years. And I think that's, it's cool to be connected to something that's longer than any of us here. Uh, and so many of our churches aren't. New Life is a new life's a young church, obviously, but we're part of a tradition that's older than, than ourselves. And so that's good to be reminded of from time to time. So let us move now to our prayer time. Um, yeah, Wednesday would be good if everyone can just pray for the Cubs to beat the Pirates. Um, that would be great. I would appreciate that. Uh, any, any help that we can get? If we, like a vigil, maybe? I don't know what we need to do. Um, to help, um, but I, I certainly, uh, I, the Bears need more than prayers at this point. Uh, exorcism, I'm not really sure how, how that's going to happen, but definitely um, praying for the Cubbies um, this week. But no, let's, uh, let's remember there are more important things than professional sports. It's hard to remember that in the fall, but there are more important things than sports in general. Uh, and we need to remember uh, that there are people who are hurting, uh, people here you know, who are hurting, and, and uh, we all got stuff on our plate. And uh, there are people who can't be here because of that stuff, and people who uh, we, we don't even know because uh, they're trapped in their homes or they're trapped in abusive relationships or uh, they're, they're trapped in, in their life and they just can't get out. We need to be God's hands and feet in this world uh, to meet that. Uh, so let us pray this uh, responsive prayer together, a little different than the prayers of the people. We did this last week. We'll do this here uh, for this series. Uh, I'll, I'll read the, the kind of longer sections as we pray, and then you respond uh, by the sections that start bring to them. All right. Let us pray. How shall we live in God's love? What should we do? How should we serve God by working with others? All these questions arise when we are called. What gifts can we bring? What peace? What hope? There are those who are ill. They are suffering. They are hurting. Bring to them the healing love of Jesus, praying for them and asking for God's loving mercy. There are those who have strayed from faith and feel lost and alone. Bring to them your loving, guiding presence, praying with them, listening to their hearts. There are those who are cheerful 
and joyful in all that they do. Bring to them a spirit of celebration and joy that they may continue in their happiness and peace. There are those who are quiet and withdrawn. Bring to them a presence of peace. Pray with them. In all your ways, bring God's abiding and transforming love to God's people, offering compassion, hope, peace, and joy. 